It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. With me, Laura Curran. Let's bring in Laura Curran, a member of the Democratic Party. Joining us now by phone, Laura Curran. Laura, good morning. Now, here's your host, Laura Curran. Hello, I am Laura Curran, and this is Cut to the Chase, where we delve into politics, media, culture, and current events. Real conversations about real issues that affect our lives, no matter where we are on the political spectrum. All right, let's get right to it. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. Today, we're going to honor and celebrate in kind of a different way Hispanic Heritage Month. Usually it's festivals, it's cultural, it's fun, but we want to kind of get under the surface, below the skin, as it were, and, you know, reflect on what is happening with the Hispanic community in America. And this is a huge topic as I was doing research for this. I mean, there are so many statistics. I'm looking at it from a political point of view, looking at the midterms, but there's so much to talk about. It's just an explosion of statistics and polls and theories and projections. But of course, we all know that the Hispanic community is not a monolith. There are generational, cultural, geographic diversity. Of course, there are contradictions and the infinite nuances that you'll find within any group of human beings that you lump together in one category. So to help get us into this, I've got a wonderful guest, an attorney by the name of Gabriela Castillo. Welcome, Gabby. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate you coming on. You are an attorney who has spent much of your professional life in the private, nonprofit, and government sectors, really working with and advocating for the Hispanic community in all of its diversity, working as an attorney through immigration cases, domestic violence cases, DACA applications, social services, helping new arrivals really get through the dense bureaucracy of this country. Yes. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and for the opportunity you know, to have this critical discussion, particularly this time of year, where I think it's a moment of reflection for the Latino community and to really think about future steps, where we want to see ourselves, creating a blueprint of you know, what stakeholders we want to be and how we can make an impact also for the next generation in this country. So you came to this country with your sister Mm -hmm. when you were five years old from El Salvador. Yes. Mm -hmm. How did that experience inform what you decided to do as an adult? I think it shaped my entire life here, you know, coming as an undocumented child, being detained, even though not for a long period of time, but going through the bureaucracy, as you said, Mm -hmm. you know, through the removal process, it was a very different time. We're talking, you know, the 1980s here, but... It was nonetheless, it was still traumatic, but it also allowed me to see the good people that were fighting for me, for other children, for other families that were forced, right, to flee, you know, a war-torn country at the time. And it allowed me to see what the process was like and how I could, as an adult, also do the same thing for others. So when I saw our immigration attorney kind of, you know, doing her thing, all I remember was, I want to be like her Mm. in one way, shape or another. And, you know, I toyed around with other career choices, but it always brought me back to law and to immigration law in particular. And I did that for about a decade and working with, you know, families similar to mine or, or sometimes just in worse, you know, more traumatic situations that I was able to hopefully, you know, I feel help them out. And then that brought me to advocacy, Mm -hmm. organizing and policy. Mm -hmm. You know, policy is really where I think that we can change things systemically, institutionally and and long term. And working in, in government allowed me that opportunity to kind of get experience working on policy. 
So this is a growing group, yes. this, this very large and diverse group. Hispanics have accounted for about half of U.S. population growth mm. in the past 12 years. Yes. And that, of course, means a big increase in voter participation. And it's interesting to see you hear Democrats and Republicans kind of claiming the Hispanic values as mm-hmm. their own. And it's interesting to see the difference in how Hispanics have voted between 2016 compared with 2020. In 2016 presidential mm-hmm. election, it was 66% Democratic to 28% Republican. In 2020, it's 59% Democratic and jumped up to 38% Republican. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is just a very large statistic. Yes. And I'm going to ask you a very general question. Mm-hmm. What do you make of that? I think the way we saw in 2016, and in 2016, it was interesting, I was working, uh, leading the Long Island Civic Engagement Table at that time. So my primary focus was getting out the vote in Mm. immigrant and communities of color. So we were registering voters. We were also, you know, getting out the vote, doing a lot of voter rights campaigns and workshops. And in those conversations, the, the leading reason for many people to say, I'm going out to vote, I haven't voted before, or I didn't even register and I'm doing it now, was because of the narrative that at that time, you know, candidate Donald Trump, right, came out with. And it was immigration and mm-hmm. it was calling immigrants, particularly Mexicans, you know, rapists and criminals, et cetera. And I mm-hmm. think that set the tone among Latino communities across yeah. the country. Yeah, I heard it. So even those that perhaps shared some conservative, socially, you know, culturally or religious conservative ideologies that would have otherwise maybe gone Republican, I think that turned them off a lot. And, you know, this is why I think the Democrats were able to maintain that vote. So did he win them over in four years? What happened? No, I think 2020 brought on different circumstances. I think 2020, we were, you know, in the height of a pandemic. Yeah. I think folks were already feeling concerns about the shutdowns. They were feeling concerned about the, you know, potential consequences if the economy after that. 2020 also brought on, I think, a narrative around racial justice, you know, after George Floyd and the protests that happened that summer. And I will say that, you know, unfortunately, I think in the Latino community, we're never really at the central focus of any racial justice conversations. And I think that many feel detached from it. I think it's obviously depending on, you know, who you are, where you live, how old you are, what your ideologies are. But for the most part, and this is what is so complex about the Latino community and voters, is that you will have very different views on these issues. So I think for them, they felt detached from that narrative, from the racial justice conversation. Mm. That perhaps, you know, didn't motivate as many to come out in, you know, in 2020 as they did in 2016. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. You know, there was an interesting statistic that I found that eligible Hispanic voters overtook eligible black voters around 2018. But black turnout is still higher than Hispanic turnout. But that could change. I mean, the youngest. Yeah, the youngest voters, Hispanic background, 18 to 20, make up close to 20% of all voters in that group, which is interesting. And there are more young Hispanic people yep. than mm-hmm. there are older Hispanic people. And yeah. this number is projected to grow about a million, those mm-hmm. three years, mm-hmm. a million every year. So yep. we could see a real shift. There's a lot of latent potential power yes. in this vote. Yes. And I think with you know the young Latino vote for a few years now, it has been the fastest growing number of new voter registrants that we've seen Mm. across the country. Mm. And I think with that comes, right, a different set of ideologies, a different set of experiences than perhaps even folks like myself, you know, on the 
kind of younger Gen X, beginning of millennial kind of yeah. demographics yeah. that weren't born here. Very different from obviously our parents, grandparents, you know, experiences, which can dictate voter behavior, voter patterns. And I think it's going to be interesting to see. But I will also say that this group, along with what we've seen, you know, statistics and data on with Latino men or working class Latino families, right, that many of them are not beholden to a certain vote. They're not loyal to a certain vote, right? They're going to be, I think, the swing vote, at least in the Latino community. They're going to be the swing vote because they're not registering with particular parties, I think that many of them have become frustrated with both parties for one or another reason. And I think it's going to be interesting to see particularly the young Latino vote in the next few years. Very interesting. And the way the trend is going now, I think Democrats have always kind of taken the vote for granted. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing especially like you say, younger men, Hispanic men are drifting away from the Democratic Party. They're, you know, perhaps thinking about the economy. They're Mm -hmm. thinking about their businesses, their jobs. And we're seeing this, especially in the South, in places like Florida and Texas, where there's a very large Latino population Mm -hmm. and it's starting to shift. And I think everybody's watching to see where this vote's going to go in those very key battleground states like Florida, Pennsylvania, that have a growing Latino population. Yeah, and you know, it's a very complex, I think, dynamic with all these different demographics. I think with Latino men, you see older working class Latino men that perhaps shifted in 2020. But among, you know, younger Latino men, especially college educated Latino men and Latinos in general, you're going to see the same shift that we're seeing nationally, you know, around college educated voters tending to vote more Democrat. I think that in states like Florida and South Texas, Republicans, you know, have always had a stronghold in those areas. I don't know how much of a gain they're going to get in the midterms. I think the states that everyone is going to be watching are going to be your Nevadas, your Arizona. Right. And even absolutely. And even on a more where Latinos, I think, will take kind of the lead or central role and will be the focus there. And, you know, in terms of voter turnout. But then you have states, too, like Georgia, North Carolina, where I think the Latino vote, although not maybe the strongest or the going to take the lead on it, they're going to play perhaps even a supportive role to the strong African-American vote mm-hmm. in those states. And I think that that's where you get, you know, along with also even a growing Asian vote Absolutely. right, in some of those states, which where, is also up for grabs. Right. And I think that's where you can see a big coalition, multiracial, multi, yeah. you know, ethnic coalition of voters of color that can make gains. I think and, when, and it's interesting because, you know, There's a lot of talk of black and brown communities, but sometimes Mm -hmm. it's the South Asians and Hispanics who kind of feel lost. I just think that that they're not, you know, when you mentioned with political parties and whether, you know, their votes are taken for granted, et cetera. I think that oftentimes in the Latino community is we're not even at the table, right, Mm -hmm. to have conversations. I think there's just a huge lack of representation Mm -hmm. and not just with elected officials, I think in terms of party leadership, you know, even from the national level, you know, in terms of, you know, going down to the local and regional levels as Mm -hmm. well. I think it's just a lack of representation. Mm. So therefore, the messaging isn't there. The communication isn't happening. But I also feel that Republicans do a terrible, terrible job Mm. of marketing and communicating right really to, to how, this how base. would you how would you characterize their approach? I think it's extreme. I think, you know, you're wanting to court a vote based simply on, I would say, 
conservative values, perhaps, you know, social, religious. But you're seeing us again, right, in that silo Mm -hmm. of we all vote the same. Mm -hmm. And one thing that is important to understand is that for the most part, Latinos also vote based on those values, but also based on group identity, which is what I think has not allowed Republicans to make these enormous gains within the Latino community as they possibly could based Mm -hmm. on those social, cultural, religious values that they tout all the time, Mm -hmm. but they don't really put into practice, you know, at least in the Latino community. So you can't tell us we share your family values, but then come out extreme anti-immigrant, xenophobic, racist and think that we're going to Right. Yeah. Follow you or we're going to vote. You're going to be consistently f- yeah. for that party. And that's interesting because it's kind of a condescending attitude. It's sort of like, here's a crumb. This is where we agree. And you're, you're easily led. So you're going to come along with Absolutely. us. Absolutely. The other mistake, and this is something that came up in last week's episode, was that a lot of politicians, consultants, et cetera, think that immigration is the number one issue among the Hispanic community. Mm. Not necessarily. It's in fact, in 2020, it wasn't considered a top issue among actual Latino voters. Right. What were the big issues? So this is an interesting poll by Unidos U.S. Yes. They found economic issues. Yes. Inflation was number one. Jobs were number two. So economic issues and the number, I'm sorry, inflation was number one and jobs were number three. Number two was crime and gun violence. Mm-hmm, so the top mm-hmm. issues had to do with public safety and mm-hmm. had to do with the economy, yeah. not immigration. Right. And I think, look, immigration is always going to be something that is important to many of us. Again, can't think that everyone's going to be, you know, in that same yeah. silo that we're always going to think just about immigration. Exactly. But because we still... Many of us are still very closely linked, right, to the immigrant experience, whether it's by grandparents, parents, even ourselves, you know, now raising even my daughters, right? My daughters are the daughters of two immigrants. Mm. My husband and I were not born here. We were both born in El Salvador. Mm. So, you know, we're still not that far off, right, from that experience that it's still important to us. But we also recognize that the economy and, you know, inflation is causing concern in the community. And just like any other voter in this country, we are also Americans and we're going to have the same concerns that any other voter in this country is going to have. Right. Um, You know, we're not just thinking about that one issue. We're not one issue voters. Yeah. You know, we care deeply about the immigration narrative where I think that many Latino voters have felt that neither party has gotten to where they need to be on that issue. They campaign on it, right? They campaign heavily. And looking at, again, you know, data and polling and reports, many Latino voters across the country have felt that, you know, Democrats have campaigned very hard on immigration reform Mm -hmm. and promising that, Mm. but for one reason or another, have not been able to deliver that. And that has, I think, also caused a bit of tensions or a rift between many Latino voters and the party that maybe could have been a reason why many of them have shifted little by little, uh, right, to vote Republican. Yeah, We we keep hearing these wonderful ideals and these promises, but where's the meat? Right. And they haven't seen that yet. And some will even, you know, again, I always say in a barbecue or a party in my family, you will have at least a dozen different opinions and reasonings. And, you know, some of my aunts have said, you know, I, I keep voting this way, but this is really upsetting me that we haven't seen, you know, for example, I vote Democrat, but I haven't seen this reform package come to light. Yeah. And they campaigned on it. We voted on it. But then they also say, 
I will never vote Republican because I don't like their message. I don't like their extreme agenda. Mm-hmm. You know, when we talk about gun safety in our community, we're talking about it in the sense of gun reform, right? Especially after Uvalde, yeah. I, our community is, you know, reeling from that. But also, you will see that for the most part, a overwhelming majority of Latinos support a progressive gun reform agenda. Yeah. They, you know, responsible gun ownership, but they want to see, I think, the agenda that, you know, Democrats have pushed and rightfully so. And I think that is also a good issue that Democrats Mm -hmm. can't forget about when Mm -hmm. campaigning, not to make it the central one because the economy is what's worrying voters right now. Yeah. But to not be afraid to campaign on that. On that gun issue. Yeah. Um, On that gun. issue. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be getting as much traction as I thought it would, Mm -hmm. honestly, with all of the horrible things that have happened, especially in Uvalde. Yep. And I think you might see that maybe on a more statewide level, for example, in Texas. Yeah. Right. You know, I've been following some of at least the governor's campaign. And I see that it's a it's a big issue that is being discussed across that state. And maybe because it just hit so close to home just recently. Do you think it could be a game changer in such a blue state and such a red Red state? state? I personally believe so. And Mm. I think that we will see, you know, my hope is that the Latino voters come out in full force because many of them, you know, have been out. I've seen, you know, kind of the campaigning, the conversations that have been happening across that state. And hopefully they they will come out and and I think flex their political muscle on an issue that they care deeply about in that state. Yeah, that's interesting. It'll be interesting Mm -hmm. to see. Just circle back for one second about the immigration issue. To your point, a large percentage of Latino voters are not clear on where Biden and the Democrats or the Republicans Mm -hmm. stand on immigration. Mm -hmm. And they According to this poll, if the Democrats and the Republicans were able to work together on comprehensive immigration reform, they would both get equal credit. Uh, (laughs) But if they don't do it, they're all going to get blamed. So it would be in the interest of both parties trying to woo this sometimes elusive population to their side. Like it's not a loser. No. To get this done and, for anybody. And I think it's a winner. throughout the years, since we've you know been discussing a comprehensive immigration reform, you know, granting dreamers, you know, also a permanent you know path to citizenship. That's hugely that popular. Has always been the response, though, for even from the American public. Right. It's overwhelmingly there is support for comprehensive immigration reform. But unfortunately, right, the loud mouths that we constantly hear from, especially in the Republican Party, are the extremist. You know, it's the xenophobic messaging that is really, I think, stopping many Latino voters from going full force and Mm. becoming, you know, consistent Republican voters. It Mm. will not happen. And Mm. I, I generally don't see Republicans making a big gain. That's besides South Florida, which hasn't really changed much. It's always been that way. It's always been like um, that. Right? And it's important to understand, too, you know, we, we talk about the Latino vote and we want to dissect, right, every election and the reasons mm-hmm. and, and focus on immigration. But a lot of it is also that I think political parties in this country need to also understand the history of our community. We have different, you know, migration experiences and histories. Right. right? If you're coming, if your, you know, great grandparents came from Puerto Rico, that's a very different story Mm -hmm. from yours, for instance, or the Cuban experience or whatever it is. Right. So I think it's, you know, understanding even the politics surrounding our countries of origin. Yeah. The reasons for those, you know, forced migration Mm. patterns that happened, you know, in Latin America. Those subtleties often get 
lost. They do. And, and many times, look, I think when you look at South Florida and you talk to Cubans and Venezuelans in particular, right? Who came you, from socialist communist countries. Right. They have a completely different up, experience. And it instills, you know, the fear mongering works, right? And this yeah. disinformation campaign that occurs in those areas where, for example, I think in Miami, disinformation kind of system over there is in full force, right? And there's no no one countering a lot of that. So the wrong information that gets put out there, you know, and the Democrats have a socialist agenda, et cetera. Yeah. Right. That's going that it's, that's going to get traction. Yes. And I think it did in those places, you know, and particularly in that area. Right. But if you talk to, you know, maybe Texas voters where you have, you know, generations of Mexican-Americans in that state, they're going to obviously have a very different experience than your more recent immigrant arrivals. You know, and looking at it regionally, right? New York City Latino voters have perhaps a different, you know, experience or thought pattern than suburban Latino voters. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that Long Island, at least for me, mm-hmm. where you I live, I feel right where I'm from. I think we are very dormant. I think the Latino community is very politically dormant. Mm. It is frustrating on many levels. Mm. Much more than in the city, say? Oh, absolutely. So why is that? Why is it more dormant? I think representation. Because it's big and it's growing. Yeah, but, you know, representation is critical. Yeah. We don't see ourselves in spaces of power on Long Island. We just don't, particularly, I would say, even Nassau County, right? We just Mm -hmm. don't. You know, And and not just, I'm not, again, not just even elect, you know, we always want to concentrate just on elect officials. Mm -hmm. But I mean, in everything, Mm. you know, I see it, you know, I always say education, right, in the educational sector, in law enforcement. So Um, do you think that breeds a lack of trust or just disengagement? I think disengagement for us. Complete disengagement. Mm. I think people, you know, again, especially in these days, people are just so concerned about where, you know, their next paycheck is coming from, how they're yeah. going to put, you know, fuel oil in their homes to heat, right? Yeah. To heat their homes. That it's getting through not, the day, getting the kids to just, school. It's getting through the day. Yeah. And it's, again, the suburbs are just a whole different breed. And oftentimes we don't talk about the suburbs and the changing demographics in the suburbs, at right. least on in New York. Yeah, I know. It, talk about a monolith. The suburbs, Long Island, is still seen by city folks as just this sort of Levittown, white bread monolith. Right. It is so wildly not like that. Right, right. It is so incredibly yep. growingly diverse. Yep. And then you pair it with a lack of resources, you know, a lack of, I think, organizing that happens, you know, so powerfully in the city with yeah. amazing groups. And I think that we lack a lot of that in the region. And it's also, I mean, Long Island has made some strides, but it still is that old school machine, old boy politic network. Oh, absolutely. That hasn't really, there may have been blips here and there, but that hasn't really shifted much. No, not at all. And I think so for many of us, even that have worked or, you know, work in government, it still very much feels that way. Right. You're kind of always questioning, well, do I belong here? You know, what kind of leadership, you know, can I possibly have in Mm. these spaces Mm. that has never really allowed for someone that looks like me to have that, to have that voice. So it's really hard to then have the conversation with my community, with our youth, right, to say, look, you know, you should be involved, you should be engaged, you should vote, when there's really not much of a reason, we're not giving them much of a reason to do that. So this is another very broad question that is probably impossible to answer. But what can individual people do? I mean, you talk about 
you know, advising young people to get engaged and to vote. What else would you advise people to do to be seen, to be heard and to really be taken into account by those who are making decisions about their lives? I think showing up, showing up and I think letting them know that we're watching as a mm-hmm. community, that we understand the dynamics of what's happening. You know, for example, redistricting, right? That Yes. Yeah, so place. you were working on the Nassau County Redistricting Commission. So yes. this is making the new lines for the new legislative districts within Nassau County. Correct. And this is happening all over the state in every county. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it happens. It happens um, once every 10 years. With once the every 10 years. And, yeah. you know, now it's seeing like, look, we saw the census data. We see, you know, how much we've grown Right. So the numbers are there. Again, it's a matter of how we build that infrastructure in our communities so that we're able to easily, I guess, you know, again, flex that political muscle that I think we have the ability to hold. And so there are public meetings. There People are can public show hearings up and right. let their voice be heard. And that could put everyone on notice like, hey, we're here. We're watching. Right. We know what has to be done. We understand the consequences of you know, an ill-drawn map. You know, we know what gerrymandering is and we're going to be here watching and we're going to fight back if we see that that's what the process ultimately brings up. So I think that's one way, right? There's no bigger fear, I think, than a community that is united, that shows up informed and that is angry about something. Absolutely. As a former elected official, I, it's <laughs> true. When people show up and they're united and they have something to say, you will listen. Yes. So pretend that you are a politician, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. What advice would you be giving yourself? What could I do to really build relationships and build trust with this very diverse community that really and also breaks up along generational lines as we've spoken out spoken about a little bit what would you do wow see i think i mean speaking for the latino community i very much still am part of that experience and that narrative so for me it's having those conversations with those stakeholders in my community right to say look i've i've done this work i've put in this work i understand and i know what we need in order to forge a path not for myself right it's not for me or for you but it's for our future generations for mm-hmm. my children mm-hmm. and this is how we do it and i think it's together creating a platform or blueprint on issues that we care about and that we want to see systemically changed. Mm-hmm. So whether it's looking at public education, whether it's looking at representation on the local level, whether it's making sure that we are heard on all these issues, and that can even translate into a national, you know, model as well, right? To say, look, yes, immigration, here's how it affects us locally. This is why we need policies that are strong at the local level and should not be controversial, right? You can't court the Latino vote, but when it comes to issues that are important to Latinos, they're going to be deemed controversial for elected officials. Ah. Um, You can't do that because how do you have our back? Yeah. Right? We need to see people that have our back. It's not that complicated. So talk to, it isn't complicated. Talk to people, find out what's important to them. Yeah. And how you can support them. What policies can you as an elected official put forward and support or develop, right, to support those concerns? And then actually follow through. And follow through. Now, mm. I can't believe it, but it's we have one minute left. This went this flew by. It this did. is the fastest <laughs> podcast, fastest half hour of my life. But I'll just leave us with this statistic. I'm trying not to bury everyone with numbers. The increase in turnout rate in the last few elections has been amazing, turnout Mm -hmm. of Hispanic voters. So let's look at the midterms. 
40% showed up in 2018 Mm -hmm. compared to 27% in 2014. So that's a jump of 27% to 40% in four years for the midterm. So let's see if it jumps even more for this midterms. In the general election, it was 47% in 16 Mm -hmm. and 54% in 2020. So that's a big jump there. So we're seeing pretty sizable jumps both in the midterms and the general. So everyone, look to see what's going to happen. Absolutely. Um, Gabby, I thank you so much. I feel like we could talk for an hour and a half. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) appreciate this. I'd love to have you back sometime, maybe after. For sure, after the the midterm. Yeah, let's talk about what happens. Talk about what happened. Right, so see if we were right, what went up, what went down. And to my dear listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. If you are enjoying Cut to the Chase, please subscribe and share. Have a great day. Bye.